All right. Can everybody hear me okay? This means yes, this means no. Okay, good. Good deal. Well, it's good to see everyone out tonight. Appreciate you being here. I'm going to try not to bore you to death, but hopefully when we study God's Word, we're not going to be bored. So, um, I have thoroughly enjoyed listening to so many different young and older men get up here and teach this class. It's so neat to see um, the lessons that you have been through many times, but when some someone of a different age or a different walk of life studies a certain subject, it never fails that depending on their experience, they bring out something that you didn't think about before. Just as every time you read through a section of the Bible, there's always something that comes out to me that I didn't notice before. And I think that's, that's so neat about God's Word. Um, this, this part that we're going to study tonight, um, Samuel is the historical record of the nation of Israel during its transition, and if you will, in government, from judges to kings. It records the last years of the judges, Samuel being the last judge, and the first years of the United Kingdom under Saul and David. During our study this quarter, we have learned that during the time of biblical history, from the death of Joshua to the crowning of King Saul, which we will study next, Israel has not been consistently faithful to God. They would become unfaithful. So as punish, punishment, God would allow some an enemy to oppress them. They would repent, so God would raise up a judge to deliver them then would follow with a period of faithfulness, following which people would again go into apostasy, and the cycle would repeat. I'm going to back up into chapter 3 before we take off on chapter 4 and just pick out a few verses to kind of set the stage for why Samuel was successful as a leader. Samuel, in verse 19 in chapter 3, Samuel grew and the Lord was with him. And let none of his words fail. Now that's the American Standard Version. Does anyone have another translation that, that says something different? Okay. Samuel did not let his words fall to the ground. When I read that, I was like, that's powerful. That's, that's a good lesson for all of us. Then it goes on to say, all of Israel knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. And would this be the last time that the Lord would talk to Samuel? Absolutely not. He would shortly thereafter uh, reveal himself to Samuel at Shiloh. All right, let's get into chapter, chapter 4. I'm going to read some and I'm going to call on some other folks to read too. Chapter 4. Thus the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer, while the Philistines camped at Apek. The Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. 
When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts who sits above the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli and Hophni and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all of Israel shouted with a great shout. So the earth resounded. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp. The Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you will become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. And the slaughter was very great, for there fell on Israel 30,000 foot soldiers, and the ark of God was taken. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. Now a man of Benjamin from the battle line came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came, behold, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, eagerly watching, because his heart was trembling for the ark of God. So the man came to tell it in the city, and all the city cried out. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, What does this noise of this commotion mean? Then the man came hurriedly and told Eli. Now Eli was ninety-eight years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. The man said to Eli, I am the one who came from the battle line. Indeed, I escaped from the battle line today. And he said, How did things go, my son? Then the one who brought the news replied, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great slaughter among the people. And your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been taken. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell off the seat backward beside the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. And, and he was old and heavy. Thus he judged Israel forty years. Now the daughter-in-law of Phineas, Phineas's wife, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was taken, and that her father-in-law and that her husband had died, she kneeled down and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the same time of her death, the woman who stood by her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have given birth to a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she called the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God was taken. And because of her father-in-law and her husband, she said, The glory has departed from Israel, from the ark of God was taken. Now, chapter 4, 
this this totally shifts gears from what we've read about up to this point. The Philistines are camped at Apex and they go to battle with the Israelites. The Israelites are defeated and lose 4,000 men in their battle with the Philistines. When those who survived came back into the camp, the elders of Israel could not understand why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines. Notice their response. Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the ark of the covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. I'm going to stop right there. What jumps out at you there about how they're perceiving what's going to happen and, and what's going to help them? Okay. Right. Okay. And, and why is all this happening? Remember chapter 2, I think starting at verse 27, it was the, this is the fulfillment of the prophecy that the man of God delivered to Eli. But then again, as Chuck was saying, this ark is almost like, it's almost like an idol. They're, they're, they're in this situation because of lack of obedience and following God. But yet, they're treating the ark as an object of something of power that they're just, they're just going to use it. Okay. Anyone else? Okay. We're going to move on. Okay. All right. And one thing, too, the, to, to make note, the ark had been located in Shiloh. From the research that I found, it had been there... It ranged from 305 to 369 years is how long it had been there. So this was an unusual thing to remove it from that location. All right. Okay. All right, let's move on. And then as the shout was loud, they heard it in the camp of the Philistines. They were questioning each other, what does this great noise mean? How did they find out about the ark entering the camp? How did they know other than the shout? How did they find out stuff back then? What did they send out? So more than likely they were spies. Okay. What was the reaction of the Philistines knowing that the ark of God had entered the Israelite camp? Woe to us. And then it repeated itself. Woe to us. And obviously, through generations of handing down the stories of what had happened to the Egyptians, uh, the plagues in the wilderness, and also is something that I noticed, that it, it seems like that they had given each plague, a God, was treated as a god. It talked about the gods and instead of the, the one almighty God, they was looking at all the things that had happened in the past as different gods. I thought that was kind of interesting. The Philistines rally themselves and remind themselves that they do not want to be slaves to the Hebrews, to be men in fight. It kind of reminds me of Joshua when he was rallying the people 
So the Philistines defeated Israel in the battle. 30,000 foot soldiers were lost. The ark of God is captured, and the two sons of Eli and Hophni, Phinehas, are killed. Then the man, the man of Benjamin ran to the battle back to Shiloh and told what had happened. The people in the city cried out. Eli was anxiously waiting to hear what had happened. Now note in verse 13, For his heart trembled for the ark of God. Eli asked, what does the sound of this outcry mean? The Benjamite told Eli what had happened and taken place. Eli, at this, at this time, was 98 years old. The messenger told Eli, Israel has fled before the Philistines. There has been a great slaughter. Your two sons have died, and the ark of God has been captured. And notice this here. This is something that... Eli already knew that this was going to happen because it was part of the prophecy back in chapter chapter 2. But if you notice that he did not fall backwards until they mentioned that the ark had been captured. He wasn't expecting that. He already knew through the prophecy that his sons were going to die. But when he heard about the ark, that that was it. That was the final straw. Um and it, it says that he, he had judged Israel for 40 years. Any more comments on chapter 4? Right. Right. That's a good point. Uh, it, it's something, too, when you read through these, this seems very quick. But I always try to make note of the times. Sometimes they don't give you enough to know, but... I always write down, okay, this is 20 years, this is five years. And then when you get to the end, you're like, you kind of understand how people, that scripture about waiting on God. You know, we, we read this and it seems like it just happens real quick, but it doesn't. It takes a long, long time. Yes. Okay, chapter five. Would anyone like to read chapter five? A good, good strong voice. I'll pay you afterwards. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thank you, Stephen. Okay. So the Philistines took the ark. It had come from Shiloh. Now it's in Ebenezer and Ashdod. The, dark, the ark has moved around a lot here in these next, through these couple chapters. Does anyone know, and I've done a little research on this, I've read through this many times, and you know how we always now, the thing is, uh, Google it. So I Googled Dagon, and Dagon is basically a male mermaid. Uh, he's a fish from here down. I don't know if you would call that a, a butler. I, I don't know. <laughs> But I thought it was really it was really interesting. I had never really seen an image of, of Dagon, but it's pretty neat. But I guess that's why it just talks about his hands being broken off. And it, it doesn't say anything about his feet. He don't have any, or his legs. But uh, it's pretty interesting. But then again, the, the Israelites go get the ark expecting it to fight for them and give them the strength and then 
when it is captured and it goes into the Philistines' camp, that's when God comes alive. Isn't that interesting? That how he, he's terrorizing their camp. But he was so dormant, you know, during the, the, the battle when it was captured. Um, but it sounds like it's, it, you know, it reminds me a lot of, uh, of the story of uh, the Egyptians, you know, when, when all the plagues and things were happening before the Israelites left Egypt. There's not a whole lot there. I, I mean, is there any comments or anything that, that, that you would like to bring out? Now we all know what Dagon looks like, so we, we've at least picked that much up. So I thought... Mm, right. Yeah, it'd be interesting to watch them jump over the threshold, too, in and out of their place of worship there, I guess. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to chapter 6, if, if there's not any more comments in chapter 5. Um, I'm going to split this one up. Um, could someone read through uh, verse 9, the end of verse 9, and then we'll pick up another reader at 10. Thank you, Dale. Now I'm going to call on some folks that have experience with livestock. Who in here has got experience with livestock? Jeremy, Kevin, Barrett. What what would two cows that's never been yoked, you try to yoke them up to a cart? How difficult is that going to be? Okay. And then if you take their calves away, I don't know how far home was, but what's the cow and the calf? What are they going to try to do when you separate them? Right? They're going to try to get back together. You know, because the mama's going to be calling for the calf and the calf's going to be calling for the mama. So then again, it's pretty obvious that this is miraculous thing that's going to happen here by just giving you those things and you know how they normally would react. And then what they say that if if it if it goes you know back away from what they would think, then they know that it's it's God playing this. Any other comments on that? Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. All right. All right. Verse ten. Then the men did so and took two milch cows and hitched them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. They put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the likenesses of their tumors. And the cows took straight away in the direction of Beth Shemesh. They, they went along the highway lowing as they went and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. And the lords of the Philistines followed them to the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And they raised their eyes and saw the ark and were glad to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua the Beth Shemite and stood there where there was a large stone. And they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was with it 
which, which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. And the men of Bethshemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices that day to the Lord. When the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned to Ekron that day. These are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned for a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, and the golden mice according to the numbers of the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both of fortified cities and of country villages. The large stone on which they set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua, the Bethshemite. He struck down some of the men of Bethshemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck down of all the people 50,070 men, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. The men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kerath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Very interesting. Now some of the uh, research, too, there's... There's some differing opinions on the number of people uh, that was struck down when they looked into the ark. Um, which to me, if it's 5,000 or 50,000, it, we, we still get the same lesson out of it. You know, it's a lot of people, they, they want to get hung up on numbers and specifics. But um, it was just something they weren't supposed to do. And it was another act of disobedience that cost a lot of people, their lives. You know, it's just funny how they just keep repeatedly doing stuff that's not that's not according to God's will. And they keep losing. Okay, they lost 4,000, then 30,000, and now if this number's correct, there's 50,070 men. I mean, do the math on that. And in what amount of time? And how how big were they? So you think about how much life was lost during this time. It, it was huge. Questions or comments? All right. Well, it's just amazing that it stayed in one spot for 300 and some years, and then it's it's moved around so many times here within a short period of time. You know, it's kind of amazing. All right, let's move on into chapter 7. Let's see, we've got uh, 15 verses. Let's split that in half. Who would like to read verse 1 through 7? Okay, who would like to read 7 through the end of the chapter? Thank you, Jeremy. So now here we see things are starting to shift back. People are starting to listen to Samuel. And he's te- he's he keeps putting this back in front of him, like in verse 3, then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods, the Ashtaroth, from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord, and serve him alone, he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So, 
you know, you back up to the prophecy that was given in chapter 2, and then it's, it's been fulfilled. But there's been this huge loss of human life through all these disobedient acts. But Samuel, is, he's using that, and he's still putting it back in front of the people. Saying, look, you know, this is what we've got to do. In order for you to have God's support and backing, you're going to have to put your trust back in him and not the, not the foreign gods. So we just, we keep, like I said, it's a, it's a repetitive cycle throughout all, a lot of the studies that, that we've done. And then also, it is, it's really interesting to see how it talks about how Samuel continually went to these cities. It's, it's almost like Paul in his missionary journey. He kept going back to these places, and he kept reinforcing re- and teaching uh, it's it's similar to you know when a new congregation is started somewhere, or if you've got uh, mission works in different places, you got to go back. You got to keep going back. You got to keep reinforcing what God would have us to do. You got to keep going back and encouraging people. I think that's that's a huge example that 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 we're seeing from Samuel here, and they're also uh, going back and and. Bringing, reinforcing the, the the proper sacrifice. You know, it, it. I know. I think it's chapter 15. I don't want to get on anybody else's material, but where it talks about um, that the Lord wants obedience and not sacrifice. I think it's chapter 15 and verse 22. Let me turn over there real quick. Um, let's see. Samuel said, "This is chapter 15, verse 22." Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. And we hear there's many references too in the New Testament that's, that reinforces that same thing. Um, God wants our obedience, not I mean, when, whenever we fail, God obviously wants our repentance, but he wants our obedience. Questions or comments? All right. I made a list here. It's kind of neat. We talked about how much they moved the ark around. Shiloh, Ebenezer, Ashdod, Gath, Ekron, Beth Shemesh, Kerjath, Jerem, and then Eliezer. That's a lot of moving around. Um, it was kind of neat, too. You know, some of these names, you know, your Samuel, my brother-in-law's name, Samuel, and I had an uncle that was Eliezer. So it's kind of neat to hear some of these names. And you, and uh, Hannah, how many Hannahs do we know? I mean, there, Hannah, I think, is one of the most popular female names that there is. We're almost out of time. Is there anything that you would like to bring out, Neil? Right. right. Something else, too, that I thought about from last week's lesson. You know, when you hear a lesson, you go home, you think about it the rest of the week. The stuff that you think bring out is how much Hannah influenced Eli. You know, he accused her of being drunk, but then she 
explains. And then a year later, she brings, or three years or whatever it was when he was weaned, brings us Samuel back and said, here, I'm dedicating. This is, the, this is what I was praying for, and I'm sacrificing this to the Lord. You know, even though she, there was something she wanted, she was willing to sacrifice it for God. And then I often wondered who was the first wife. I'm going to think it was Hannah because how many other examples do we have in the Old Testament where there was a married couple and they didn't want to wait on God for his children, but they'd always bring something, another person in to meet their time frame. They didn't want to wait on God. That's just, that's just my speculating. I don't know. But it's just kind of neat to take other stories and think, well, who, who was the first? And then how many years was she taunted? Because it plainly said there were sons and daughters, so there was a minimum of four children from the other wife. So this, this went on a long time. And then sometimes when we want things to happen in our time frame, we we got to sit back and go, you know, we we got to wait on God sometimes. We we just got to do the right thing. And and for whatever reason or whatever's going on, as long as we're doing what God wants us to do, it's going to work out. And we're not going to understand everything that's going on, but I think these examples help us to see that if we just keep on keeping on and keep trusting in God that things are going to work out for the best. Thank you for your time. Thank you for being here.